Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. Doing it again. Doing it again. Yes, yes, yes. As always, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name mm-hmm. is Nathan. This is David. And we're going to take you on a whirlwind tour of Black Reconstruction in America. And by whirlwind, I mean the slowest goddamn whirlwind you've ever <laughs> been on, ladies and gentlemen. Just, the, just as slow as it could possibly be. Um, but that being said, uh, David, as we usually do, are there any current events percolating around? Oh, uh, yes. There's I would think so. A, there's kind of a big one. Um, so in Haiti... Uh, we've talked about there is an election that uh, Juvenile Moise, who uh, took power kind of as a success for as a uh, successor um, to the U.S. puppet that that cooed um, Haiti's legitimate president back in 2004, I want to say, um, and lost the election, was just refusing to, to move out of the presidential seat and was just ruling by decree. And of course, this is a U.S. backed puppet. Well, there's been a lot of uprisings because Haiti for, you know, I don't know, 200 years has been a bedrock of revolution. And every time they win a revolution because they dared to be the place that freed the slaves, the entire imperial forces come down, raining down upon them and lock them down. And then they push back because it's Haiti. And then it, it, comes raining down and it ebbs and flows probably more than anywhere else in the world. And the uprisings were really heating up. Obviously there's, was almost dead silence, um, in Western media because Western media doesn't care. But, uh, the reality of it is it was heating up quite a bit. And all of a sudden now, uh, Moise got assassinated as did, I believe his wife got assassinated at the same time. And it seems to be a little bit of a coup because, what? A little bit of a coup? A little bit of a coup. Uh, there were people that were speaking, not French, but English and Spanish. English, particularly with an American accent, shouting DEA. And for anyone who knows anything about DEA and the whole war on drugs, DEA, just like the NED, is just basically an extension of the CIA. Uh, it actually very explicitly is. Reagan named that. It's just a pretty face in the CIA. The DEA, which is supposed to be this local anti-drug in the United States police, is mostly an international drug trafficking uh, force for uh, the U.S. military and the CIA. Um, and so they act like, you know, essentially another branch of the U.S. military. And so shouting, this is a DEA operation in American-accented English is a pretty big giveaway that this is kind of an American operation. Um, apparently, I guess they felt the heat coming on and decided uh, that Jovenel Moise was a uh, liability, and they had to get rid of that liability, hoping that maybe it would calm down the uprisings, or maybe that they could just come in and straight-up occupy again. Um, and so very, very scary times in, in Haiti as it was tumultuous already. Um, and hopefully the uprisings, you know, gain some traction and continue and don't get violently repressed, um, as they were in say, you know, 1915 or several other times by the United States. Um, but that, that's a big, big deal. And it looks like it was, you know, kind of an inside job, um, other than that, of course, you know, I mean, protests continue in uh, Colombia and, and tend to not get much attention. Um, so that's a big one. Um, 
I saw a couple news sources that are usually pretty reliable about world events, but don't normally cover African elections, mentioning a presidential candidate for the August elections in Zambia. Um, and I don't know if that's because those sources are just growing in size or because they're realizing, hey, Africa's kind of important and we should do a better job of covering that, or because they think just like South American elections are, are kind of turning in a pink tide way that that uh, this candidate has a chance of winning in Zambia. Uh, whichever one or combination of those to be true, I consider that good news. Yep. So that's good. Um, that's, that's what I've got off the tip of my tongue. I feel well, like there's... Well, there's always more stuff going on, but we're not yeah. explicitly a current event show, so we try and hit the highlights as we can uh, yeah. to, to tie it back if it's if it's something that can be tied back into what we're doing or, or just theory in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think that is a good uh, th- that is a good overview of of events of the week, as it were. <laughs> yes. um, that being said, as we are wont to do, we are going to jump right into the reading this week. We're on page five sixty six, second paragraph from the bottom. In 1872, the state appropriated $50,000 for the colored schools in addition to the colored tax, but the white schools received all the regular school tax. In 1878, the sum of 100000 was appropriated to be taken from the state school fund at the expense of the white schools. This remained the law until 1888. Baltimore had before the war at least six private schools taught by colored people, and later, northern philanthropists founded the school for the freedmen. Oh, there they are again, those good old northern philanthropists. Mm-hmm. Kentucky was a state with 41,082 Negroes at the beginning of the century, 170,000 in 1830 and 226,000 in 1860. The Negroes formed a little over one third of the population. There were comparatively few free Negroes, the state being only the number only being 10,000 in 1860. Kentucky was so situated between the two sections that it was the main current of trade movements. Not only was it vitally interested in the slave trade to the south, but also in the trade in foodstuff and manufactured materials from the north. The economic problem, therefore, for Kentucky during the Civil War was difficult. Her chief interest was to keep the sections from falling apart and thus spoiling her favored economic position. Then, then too, she had several important crops, hemp, flax, and livestock. In all these economic industrial activities, the Negro figured largely. On the other hand, Kentucky was near the border, and the loss of capital through runaway slaves was a constant menace to the system. Uh, not Most, super yeah. important to the, the purpose of that paragraph, but just because this is a historical document, you kind of skipped a line. Kentucky's chief crop was tobacco, followed oh, by I corn, then yeah. hemp, flax, and livestock. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. Yep, Toba- they, yep they were growing tobacco. Yeah. No sooner did the war open than this menace was increased by the action of the slave owners themselves. This practice of putting slaves to work on military projects was first begun with the slaves of Southern sympathizers. A network of wagon roads was to be had to be constructed over which military supplies should go. Fortifications had to be built. Large number of slaves were early sent to work on a road from central Kentucky to Cumberland Gap. And by the middle of 1863, Boyle was calling for 6,000 slaves to extend the railway from Lebanon to Danville. In 1863, there was a rumor that the slaves would rise in insurrection at Christmas time and that the northern troops would aid them. This was followed by, policy, by the policy of enlisting colored troops into northern armies. The enlistment of slaves ended the slave system. The cash bounty and offer of freedom brought droves of black volunteers. The Negroes yeah. deserted the fields in the midst of growing crops in many parts of the state, and in western Kentucky, where they were under better control, steamboats threatened the rivers with squads of troops ra- raided the plantations and forcibly took hundreds of Negroes from the fields. 
In Madison County, Negro regiments were used to scour the fields and force the slaves into the army. 10,000 slaves left the state during the year 1863. Slaves enlisted at the rate of 100 a day and after the war were freed at a rate of 500 a day. Still, the legislature refused to ratify the 13th Amendment. Kentucky regarded the Emancipation Proclamation issued January 1st, 1863 an unwise, unconstitutional, and void. Oh, good for them. Legislation was passed to nullify its execution, and in 1864, slaves were still being sold for $350 to $500 apiece. Mm. Yeah. Gotta love There's There's a clear idea here that these border states didn't struggle any less with Reconstruction. No. Uh, David, you want to take over? Yeah, the Freedmen's Bureau set up the first state organization for the Negroes at a convention held in Lexington, March 22nd to 23rd, 1866. It was bitterly opposed because of its attempt to secure colored men justice in the courts. General Fisk announced to the Freedmen's Court would establish for the protection of the Negroes, and in the following months, these courts would found these courts found much to do. This activity scared the legislature into granting the Negro partial civil rights and abolishing the slave code. That is kind of this, um, you know, you, you liberate by force, right? This is the kind of the welfare started doling out after the threat of the Soviet Union existed, and then it was ripped away as soon as it was gone, right? This is the same thing, except that's not like an outside threat you know, worrying people about an inside threat. It actually was an inside threat. Th slaves were being set free. And so it was like, oh, well, uh, I guess we should go ahead and scale back. Um, during 1867, the Bureau arrested 89 persons charged with crimes against Negroes and handed them over to the federal courts for trial. The legislature stubbornly refused to ratify the 13th Amendment. After it had been ratified, Kentucky passed a Civil Rights Act. Again, forced to do it, they'll do it. <laughs> Uh, February 1866, which repealed the old slave code. The bill was passed as a result of a refusal on the part of Congress to remove the Freedmen's Bureau from the state until Negroes had been granted civil rights. The freedmen were given all the civil rights enjoyed by white persons, with the exception of sitting on juries and testifying against whites. They're really obsessed with that one, and obviously, I mean, obviously ah, why, right? Yeah, it is a huge one, because then white people can do stuff to black people, and then when convicted, because illegal for everyone, weirdly, they get this all-white sympathetic jury. Um, white labor rivalry was widespread. Guerrilla ba bands spread all over the state following the war. In March 1865, a band of men stopped a train on the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad by tearing up the track of the Ohio River, secured 30000 in United States bonds, robbed the passengers, and fled across into Boone County. A similar crime was committed in 1867 in Simpson County. Some of the members of this gang were arrested. Some of the names of these gangs assumed were Regulators, Rowney Band, and Skaggs men in madison county the regulators terrorized three or four years a wealthy farmer was hanged in mercer county one was shot and then hanged another 70 year year old was killed and later two cousins were also hanged in western kentucky the negroes were warned to leave the country and landowners threatened with having their homes burned if they rented to them the in the election yeah yeah um, and I mean, you know, we know these these roving white supremacist uh, spots of violence was a huge thing, especially you know during and right after Reconstruction. Um, and this is this is it playing out. 
in the election of 1864, the two parties were the conservatives and the radicals. The radical party was the champion of the rights of the Negroes. A great storm of complaint came from the conservatives. The military authorities had acted outrageously. They had assumed control of the election as if it were wholly an affair of the army, and had assumed to decide who should vote and who should not. Soldiers were stationed around the polls, and at many places they were Negroes, holding lists of names of people who some radicals thought should not vote. Some of these were permitted to approach the ballot box. All were simply people who opposed to the 13th Amendment. Oh, oh no. All oh, were just oh, people that didn't crime. want the slaves freed. Oh, poor oppressed us. Again, this is what you're battling every time you battle authoritarianism. And this is why, I, I, sure, there's a such thing as an ideology that believes in, in more laissez-faire government versus believing in a clamping down you know, government setting things right, but every ideology truly has aims that it defends and opposes, and that's what's far more important, and the level of authority is usually dictated by the material conditions and by a reaction to, you know, how much pushback you have from who you're opposing, right? And so the idea of being anti-authoritarian is just a fault. It's just, it's not paying attention to the dynamic of who you're defending and who you're opposing and substituting just a generic belief in, in being hands-off, which is just handing power to your enemy. Yep. In the meantime, Negroes began their political organization on Emancipation Day, and the 4th of July held celebrations with parades. The celebration of July 4th, 1868, was attended by 15,000 Negroes from Fayette and surrounding counties. Radicals estimated that there would be over 50,000 Negro votes, and that only through these votes could they overcome conservatives. The proposed 14th and 15th Amendments encouraged the Radicals to anticipate victory by organizing Negro voters. It was predicted that there would be 100,000 Negro votes. The Louisville Commercial declared that elections thereafter would not be one-sided affairs of 1867, 1868, and 1869. Picnics and celebrations were held on the passage of the 15th Amendment, where the Negroes gathered in great numbers, and where the Radicals used their full opportunities to make speeches and to organize and control new voters. One of the celebrations was held in Paris, Kentucky, and was attended by more than 6,000 Negroes. The most ambitious move to organize the Negroes was made in a convention at Frankfurt in February 1870, where Negroes from almost every county in the state gathered. The first Republican convention of the colored citizens of the state of Kentucky was refused the legislative halls, but it seemed to have lost no prestige by meeting elsewhere. For one of its members boldly declared, the eye of the world is upon Major Hall, where they finally met. The planters and capitalists made a counterstroke by starting a noisy agitation for Chinese and other foreign labor. And isn't isn't that so American, right? The planters and the capitalists got yep. together and they said, "Hey, we're we're going to use foreign labor to undercut you. So just make sure you think that the foreign labor is the bad guy, not us." And oh, by the way, we're threatening you with it. And um, yeah, so let's let's kick up the racism a notch. Hooray, America. Um, many Negroes were alarmed. Partly as an answer to this, and for other purposes, a Negro convention was held in Louisville, Kentucky, on July 18, 1869. There were 250 delegates in attendance. The subjects discussed were political and economic, as well as educational. They included the abolition of the relics of slavery, equal education, the rights of the courts, equal taxation, the ratification of the 15th Amendment, and the purchase of real estate. 
The Negroes advised the young men and the youth of Kentucky to learn trades and engage in agricultural pursuits as a proper mode of supporting themselves and giving encouragement to mechanics and agriculture and by all means to procure homes for themselves and families. In Fayette County, a meeting of Negroes was held in which they expressed their willingness to work and enter into labor contracts with whites. An intelligence officer of the ex-soldiers maintained a labor agency. During the first half of 1869, 3,000 Negroes were supplied with jobs through them. On August 20, 20th, 1869, the Negroes observed a day of thanksgiving for their success. Evidently, the whites were praised for their cooperation. They contributed ham, beef, flour, and other provisions for the celebration. Now, to me, I would much rather celebrate that Thanksgiving every year um, than, would, than the colonial bullshit one. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's not celebrate the Wampanoag genocide turkey shit. Let's do that one. Um, the August first is test soon. of Negro suffrage came in August or came in 1870 when county offices were to be filled. The Democrats attempted to arouse the Negroes to demand offices so that the radicals would be estranged. The Democrats did not intend to invite Negro support, and they early saw that it would be dangerous to interpose violent opposition to Negro voting. What then would be their position toward inviting his support? Henry Watterson believed that the Negro suffrage would be accepted as an established fact and that Negro voters should be welcomed as much as others. But the whole idea of Negro suffrage was so fearful and repulsive to the Democrats that they plead with the reasonable radicals as sensible men to halt and think seriously for at least one minute. They sought to drive out of the party many radicals by holding up to them the specter of Negro officials. In fact, they pushed the logic with great emphasis on every occasion that if the radicals embraced the Negroes, they must give them offices. They hoped to arouse the Negro on this point to demanding offices and thereby imperil his relations with his allies. Oh, my God. Now, I mean, the easy answer to that, of course, is enthusiastically support black people holding office. But again, that reminds us of the chauvinism, even in people that see themselves as left-facing or radical in the United States. And, of course, just the deep entrenched racism that that would be the threat, right? Yep. It's another one of those threatening us with a good time again, right-wing talking uh, points. Exactly. <laughs> Cheating and fraud were eventually resorted to. Oh, uh, well, we've seen this show before. Many Negroes were prevented from voting by requiring receipts for taxes which had been assessed on them. There were insufficient facilities for voting, purposely leaving the Negroes waiting until the sun went down. Man, I've heard this refrain before. An endless number of irrelevant questions were asked, requiring in one place from 20 to 25 minutes for four Negroes to vote, while 10 to 15 whites could vote during that time. The question of offices became increasingly important for the Negroes. It was not merely a matter of personal ambition, but here, as in the Deep South, a question of the administration of the law in which they were perfect right feared to trust entirely to the hands of whites. I'm going to reread that sentence again. But here is in the Deep South a question of the administration of law, which they, with perfect right, feared to trust entirely to the hands of whites. Yeah, don't trust white people to enforce the law. Good yeah. God, no. In 1873, a Negro convention declared that since they had voted for the radicals, they should now have a reasonable portion of the offices. And if claims were to be ignored, they would cease to be indebted to this party any more than to any other. I think that's the right stance. I think that's the right stance, but it's just hilarious that this is, again, it's just that threat me with a good time. Like, yeah, let's do yeah, that. Yeah, that was, that was the right-wing talking point, and they were like, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> that's let's awesome. Go. In 1867, the Negroes owned a, a million dollars of taxable property, on which they paid a tax of $3,661. Most of this wealth consisted in land, which they greatly coveted. 
1871, Negro agricultural fairs were held in many of the counties. The freedmen were encouraged by bureau agents and by other people to be frugal and begin to save money. The branches of the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, located in Louisville and Lexington, contained 171000 in savings belonging to Negroes when the crash came. The economic rebirth of the state went on with Negro help. The number of farms increased in this decade, 1860 to 1870, from 90,000 to 118,000. The last year of the war, 1864 to 65, tobacco dropped from 127 million pounds to 54 million. Wheat went from 8 million bushels to 3 million. Hemp from 10 million pounds to 2 million. Hay from 135,000 tons to 127,000. Well, the hay was doing okay. Barley from 161,000 bushels to 137,000. That Corn goes with incre- the hay. Not much of a drop-off. Yeah. Corn increased from 39 million bushels to 58 million. Oh, look at that. The corn's coming in. An increase in crops. You know what? We give marks a lot of bullshit for uh, for 10 linens of Ten bolts of linen and ten yards. Du Bois is a is a motherfucker for his statistics, man. He loves listing off some numbers in a row. Uh, he does. Just, just, just keeps doing it to us. <laughs> this this is a man that that famously like one of his famous things he did was like making really 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 pretty well done uh, graphs of population density and stuff like that for uh, I think the World Fair. Um, so I mean he comes by it honestly, but still the, the, let call it where it's due. Come on now. <laughs> An increase in crops began in 1867 and attained the pre-war mark by 1871. A comparison of the produce of these two years shows an increase in tobacco from 54 million to 103 million pounds, hay from 127,000 to 320,000 tons, barley from 161,000 to 243 bushels, corn fell from 58 million to 54 million bushels. Man, corn just seems to do whatever the hell it wants. I just, I just love how corn grabs your attention because you're seeing all these numbers, you're having capital flashbacks, and then you remember that that corn laws part just sparks like oh shit it is capital it's corn it's corn it's all corn all the way down <laughs> tennessee was a border state oh we're all right we're, we're done with kentucky we're moving on to tennessee tennessee That's was right. a border state which formed in many respects an economic complement to kentucky the state had at the beginning of the century 3,778 negroes they increased rapidly to 146,000 in 1830 damn that is rapid that's a big uh, yeah that, that's, a, that's a large jump chiefly through the development of the Cotton Belt in the western part of the state near the Mississippi. At the opening of the war, Tennessee had 283,000 Negroes. The number of free Negroes was small, being only 7,300 in 1860. During the decade of 1850 to 1860, Shelby County, of which Memphis was the center, gained its great mass of Negro population. From this point, the Cotton Kingdom spread west and south. In strong contrast to this, in Nashville and in the middle and eastern parts of the states, and in similar parts of Kentucky, there was strong emancipation settlement in early times, chiefly with the motive of getting rid of the competition of Negro labor. This was the manifested this was manifested by opposition to the custom of slaves hiring out at times, which was prevalent in this part of the state. In the Constitutional Convention of 1796, there was an attempt to prohibit slavery after 1864, which did not pass. But free Negroes who met the requirement of residence and landholding were allowed to vote. They enjoyed this right until 1834. At the Convention of 1834, another attempt to abolish slavery was defeated, and the vote was denied free Negroes, with some exceptions. And we're going backwards. The slave trade in Tennessee was even more lucrative than in Kentucky, and there was strong trade in both slaves and materials down the Mississippi to New Orleans. The Confederates seized most of Tennessee at the beginning of the war, but with the retreat of the Confederate army after the surrender of Fort Donaldson, Donaldson, yep, Donaldson, in 1862, yeah. 
A territory of 30,000 square miles was open to federal occupation, and a population of one million souls was left without government and impossible danger of a slave insurrection. To meet the emergency, President Lincoln, March 3rd, appointed Senator Andrew Johnson, a former governor of Tennessee, military governor with the rank of brigadier general. Not that Andrew Johnson, I assume. Okay. I, I, I don't know. It, hmm. It'd be, hmm. He wouldn't, I, I would think he'd have been vice president by then, though. I, yeah. I assume so, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe Johnson's showing his, his face early. In 1863, Rosencrans needed every available man for the winter campaign. Lincoln telegraphed September 8th and urged all Union officers to get every man he could, black and white, to guard the roads and bridges and send all better trained soldiers forward to Rosencrans. On October 21st, Johnson and Stearns of Massachusetts were authorized to raise troops in Tennessee. Six regular Negro regiments and two garrison and hospital regiments were thus raised. David. Governor Johnson made attempts immediately and at several times thereafter to reorganize the civil government of the state, but all these attempts failed until the people of East Tennessee undertook the task in summer of 1864. In November 1864, the East Tennessee Union Executive Committee called a convention to meet in Nashville in December. Meantime, the Confederates captured Knoxville, and when it was time for the convention to meet, Hood was threatening Nashville. The convention was, therefore, postponed until January 8, 1865. By the time the Confederates had been driven out, Johnson had been elected vice president. Oh, it is that Johnson. Oh, there it is! It's that Johnson! Son of a bitch! And Congress had refused to count Tennessee's scattering presidential vote. The convention met and voted for amendments to the Constitution, one, abolishing slavery, two, providing that all citizens who had borne arms for the United States should be allowed to vote. Color should not disenfranchise any person who is competent to witness in the courts. I notice how there's a convention as soon as Johnson leaves that finally works, giving black people (laughs) civil rights. Um, Johnson favored the amendments, and they were put through with slight modification. I worry what the slight modification is, but Du Bois doesn't seem to care, so we'll go on. Uh, this is the story of Winston, but by consulting Hall, one learns that the slight modification was the dropping of the amendment which allowed Negroes to vote. Never there mind, I was, I was right to worry, nope. and I should have listened to my rule You're of shut up and listen to Du Bois. <laughs> the report finally adopted by the convention proposed two amendments in the state constitution, one to abolish slavery and the other forbidding the legislature to make any law recognizing it. The report directed that all who voted should take the ironclad oath and that the convention should nominate a candidate for governor and a complete legislative ticket. In the ensuing election, 20% of a vote in 1860 was cast. William G. Brownlow was chosen governor by 23,352 votes against 35 scattering ones. 23,000 votes against 35 votes? Is that what that says? I don't know what a scattering vote is, but Scatter, yeah, holy shit. Um... Four days after the inauguration, Lee surrendered and the new government was safe. That's good. Yeah, sounds sounds good. The Constitutional Convention had declared in favor of disenfranchising all who had fought against the United States. Governor Brownlow was determined to make this declaration into law, like in the Governor Brownlow, which he was vice president instead of Johnson. (laughs) Uh, After recommending the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Federal Constitution, he reminded the legislature that loyal people who had entrusted the qualifications of voter to them wanted them to act decisively in the manner. He asked the legislature for military force and to enforce the law when enacted. 
The law provided that white persons of lawful age and residence who had entertained unconditional Union sentiments from the outbreak of the war or derived at the age of 21 years since November 4, 1865, or it can prove their loyalty or had been honorably discharged from the Union Army or who Union men constructed in the Confederate Army or had voted in the elections of 1864-1865 should be entitled to the privileges of elective franchise. So this is sorting out the white people who get to vote, which again... Yeah. Pushing out the Confederate ones like that, that makes sense. They lost their ass in the war. Uh, at the next session of the legislature, the governor recommended the amendment of the franchise bill and the colonization of the Negroes in Texas or Mexico and their admission to full citizenship and suffrage in case the franchise law restricting the vote of former Confederates should be repealed. The result was that a bill which the first legislature had refused to consider became law January 21st, 1866. This said that the persons of African and Indian descent are hereby declared to be competent witnesses in all courts of the state in a full manner such as persons are as an act of Congress competent witnesses in all courts of the United States. And all laws and parts of laws in the state, excluding such persons from competency, are hereby repealed. Provided, however, uh -oh. that this act... Uh-oh. Yeah, worried about the uh -oh. turn. What, what's the uh, but? That this act shall not be construed so as to give colored persons the right to vote, hold office, or sit on juries of the state. There it is. Yeah, there it is. And this provision is inserted by virtue of the provision of the ninth section of the amended constitution ratified February 22nd, 1865. Race prejudice was strong in East Tennessee based on economic rivalry of Negroes and poor whites. East Tennesseans thought, though opposed to slavery and secession, do not like N-word. Uh, this is at the day where more prejudice against color among the middle and poor classes, the union men of the South who owned fewer no slaves than among the planter who owned them by scores in the hundreds. On the other hand, the planters had not surrendered their ideas on slavery. So basically everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the designs of the great secession majority of Tennessee may have changed by the events of the war. And so many have been their opinions of their own strength and of the strength of the government. But unless your memorialists greatly misunderstand them, their sentiments, sympathies, and passions remain unchanged. They welcome peace because they are disabled from making war. They submit because they can no longer resist. They accept results they cannot reject and profess loyalty because they have a halter around their necks. I mean, if they're bigots, Damn. I'm okay with that. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> Weird things happen when you gain power. This is, again, why we are revolutionaries. This is exactly what we want to happen. Uh, they recognize the abolition of slavery because they see it before them as a fact, but they say it was accomplished by gross violations of the Constitution that the Negro is free only in fact but not in law of right. Oh, good. Yeah. The attitude of the state toward Negroes was bad. <laughs> really? You don't say? The predominant feeling of those lately in rebellion is that of deep-seated hatred, amounting in many cases to a spirit of revenge toward the white unionists of the state and a haughty contempt for the Negro, whom they cannot treat as a freedman. The hatred for the white loyalists is intensified by the accusation that he deserted the South in her extremity and is therefore a traitor, and by setting up a government of the minority... Oh my God, I hate... Oh my God... The spirit of revenge yeah. is called forth by the attempt to disenfranchise them and by the retaliatory acts of the returned Union soldiers for the wrongs done them during the war. The Negro is the Mordecai who constantly reminds them of their defeat and of what they call a just but lost cause. There it is. Lost causers. They're here. Mm -hmm. da -da 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 -da. Uh, fill in your bingo cards, gang. 
And the sight of him in what in the enjoyment of freedom is a constant source of irritation. Imagine living your life like that. <laughs> just, just bitter imagine. that you got your ass handed to you at a war and don't get to own slaves. No, just the, co- the the sight of him and the enjoyment of freedom is a constant source of irritation. Yeah. Another yeah. human being is free, and that makes you upset. But it's because you've created a system of finite power, and then you've not held on to the power. You know, I mean, we've talked about this, right, where what's the difference between liberalism and fascism? And the first most correct answer is absolutely nothing. And the second next most correct answer is so much as there's a difference, it's the people that see over time that the system that gives them power and reinforces their power constantly through accumulation doesn't always funnel the power unidirectionally, and that offends them and pisses them off, and so they get together and violently enforce the power structures constructed by liberalism and throw everyone that's not meant to be in them out. And that's the fascism we think of when we think of fascist Italy or Nazis or, or things like that, right? Um, and these people are that very kind of fascist before Italy had ever uttered the word fascism. Yep. On the 1st of May, 1866, a riot broke out in Memphis between the whites and blacks, which continued two days and resulted in the death of 24 Negroes and the wounding of one white man. As a result of this, the legislature passed the Metropolitan Police Bill. Oh, look, gang. E- Look at that. May 14th. May 14th. Less than a week later? Like two weeks they passed. Oh, my God. Mm. Which provided that the police regulations of the city of Memphis should be in the hands of three commissioners appointed by the governor and made it a crime for anyone else to attempt to exercise any control in the city not subordinate to this board. Oh, that won't end poorly. No way. Mm -hmm. No. The provisions of this act were also extended to Nashville and Chattanooga. Look at that, guys. The police state. It's here. It's fun. The Negroes of Tennessee were not content. Good on them. On Friday, June 23rd, 1865, they sent out notice of a state convention in August. Great efforts are being made to oppress, and in our judgment, in relation to House Bill Number 47, and re-enslave us. Let us lay our grievances before the general government. Under the government of the noblest patriot of the country, Andrew J- <laughs> He hadn't shown his colors yet, and he was from Tennessee. Under the government of the noblest patriot of the country, Andrew Johnson, the friend of humanity and liberty, oh, we God, feel that assured hurts. that our cause will succeed. We enter anew upon our duties as men, and trusting in God, come one, come all, rally to the cause of liberty and to the rescue. Guys, I have a real bad uh, bad feeling about what Andrew Johnson being your great liberator is going to do for you. Mm-hmm. The convention was in session for four days and resolved that we protest against the congressional delegation from Tennessee being received into the Congress of the United States if the legislature of Tennessee does not grant the petition before it prior to December 1st, 1865. A month before the opening of Congress in December 1865, the clerk of the House announced his decision not to put on the official roll the names of any man claiming to be elected from any southern state. This decision of the clerk was endorsed by the Republican caucus held at the opening session. Congress assembled at noon, December 4th, and when the clerk, in calling the roll, reached Indiana, Mr. Maynard, from the 1st District of Tennessee, rose and attempted to speak, but the clerk would allow no interruption of the roll. 
A report of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, March 5th, 1866, proposed to allow the admission of Tennessee with white suffrage, but it was recommitted. July 20th, it reappeared and was amended by the Senate so as to require the acceptance of the 14th Amendment. In this form, the resolution was passed July 23rd and was approved July 24th. Although the president denied that Congress had any right to pass laws preliminary to the admission of qualified representatives from any of the states and objected to certain words in the preamble, Tennessee complied by promptly accepting the 14th Amendment, July 11th to 12th, 1866, the vote being 15 to 6 in the Senate and 43 to 11 in the House. Subsequently, February 6th, 1867, the House of Representatives of Tennessee passed a bill striking the word white from the franchise law of the state by a vote of 38 to 25. All right. Okay. The Senate concurred February 18th by a vote of 14 to 7. <laughs> That's such weird purport. 38 to 38 and 25 and 14 Like and they seven. barely it's passed six. it after they took on the 14th Amendment, which tells uh, you that a lot of those people were like, you know, gritting their teeth like, yeah, we just did that to get back in. Where everybody else was like, yeah, no, we okay, we lost. Here it is. And in March, the Supreme Court of the state upheld the constitutionality of Negro suffrage. The Republican platform in February 1867 severely attacked Andrew Johnson as an unprincipled adopted son, but said nothing directly about the Negro. The conservative platform of 18, April 17th said that our colored fellow citizens, now be, being now citizens of the United States and citizens of the state of Tennessee and voters of this state, are entitled to all rights and privileges of citizens under the laws and a constitution of the United States and the state of Tennessee. That's the conservative platform? Yeah. Um, Fuck. Again. They got their asses kicked. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Uh, in a race for Congress in 1872, Johnson made a bid for the Negro vote. In the western counties, crowds of Negroes attended the speaking, some evidently anxious to make good citizens. Addressing these colored people, Andrew Johnson explained his position. If fit and qualified by character and education, no one should deny you the ballot. Thanks for the unnecessary ifs, Andrew fucking Johnson. God damn it. I have been ridiculed for saying I would be your Moses, he continued. Yet I say again, I will be your Moses, and if you have certificate to vote, you should be allowed to vote. Oh, Andrew Johnson, don't call yourself Moses. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. Uh, there were two or three Negroes in Tennessee legislature during Reconstruction, while others served as state and city officers. Nashville at one time had a third of its city council composed of Negroes. Missouri was a western state, which became Woo! southern. Yeah. Here we go. Until they became southern part, which became southern because it was on the great national highway to the south, and its political weight was needed by the southern oligarchy. All it right, was well, less thought, fun. It was thought that if American Missouri remained a slave state, Kansas, Colorado, Hold on. and California. No, no, stop. Stop right there. It was thought that if, and you read Missouri as American. <laughs> oh, did I? <laughs> you did. You said it was oh thought God. that if American remained a slave and it was Missouri. I, dude, I get that it's our state, but we're not the whole country for fuck's sake. I mean, <laughs> God damn. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to get my brain reset. It was we're thought almost done that- with this chapter, gang. Hang in there. It was thought that if Missouri remained a slave state, Kansas, Colorado, and California would follow, and the Southern Empire would be safe. But if Missouri was lost, slavery would be restricted with its whole Western dependence on Texas. Missouri had few Negroes, 
3,618 at her first census, 59,814 in 1840, and 118,503, about a tenth of her population in 1860. Only 3,572 of them were free. Most slaveholding families only had three or four Negroes. Slavery was not a system. It was a survival, a sentiment, and a matter of common labor and service. That's always nice. Don't worry. I just I just need these slaves to survive. It's just it's a tool. Yeah. It's everyday life. So proud of my state. Really, really happy right now. Um, this made sharp economic division. At the outbreak of the war between those who had said slavery was industrially useless in Missouri, but the South had a right to it. <laughs> but the South had a right to it, and those who cared neither for slavery nor for the South. There arose a bitter in in turn. Internecine strife? Internecine. Internecine strife, family against family and neighbor against neighbor. To the Union went 109,000 troops, to the Confederates, 30,000. There were 244 battles and 2,261 engagements in the state, which devastated the land and killed over 30,000 people. War routed thousands of settlers and spread robbery and crime, lying and murder, mistreatment of women and children, disease and death. The legislature of 1860 favored the South, but not secession. The new governor, Jackson, who sought to force the state into secession, was opposed by F.P. Blair, a leader of the new industrial development. The Civil War came, and Blair was victorious. A constitutional convention of 1865 abolished slavery without compensation. Boom. The convention... Yeah, at least for the first day that abolished it without compensation. With no so that's compensation! Good. Uh... The convention, which emancipated the Negro, drew up a new constitution which provided for the establishment and the maintenance of free public schools for the instruction of all, perp- of all persons in the state who were between the ages of 5 and 21. Later, the legislature passed a law requiring one or more segregated schools to be set up in cities and villages. This law, like many other laws relating to the Negro, was overlooked. During the period, however, there was a growing sentiment in favor of public schools. The school system grew. Negro troops founded the first school of the Negro Higher Training at Jefferson City Lincoln Institute. The radicals carried the elections of 1866 and 1868, but nevertheless, the state constitutional amendment enfranchising the Negro in Missouri was defeated. The amendment was submitted by the legislature, but was lost by more than 19,000 votes. Opposition came from the Democrats, who voted solidly against it, and from... A goodly number of radicals also. The question of enfranchising the Negroes had been an important issue in the state ever since they'd been freed in 1865, but it was submitted to the people in the form of a constitutional amendment but once. The 15th Amendment of the United States, conferring suffrage upon the Negro, was ratified and put in force before the amendment of the Constitution of Missouri could be wrought up again. This settled the issue without any further contest in the state. Here, then, is a sketch of the part of the which Negroes took in the Reconstruction was very... Here, then, is a sketch of the part which Negroes took in Reconstruction of various southern states, together with some indication of their action along the border. It is incomplete, and for that reason, inconclusive. Yet no one can read these records and documents upon which they are based without concluding that this was a perfectly normal development, that these black men were ordinary men who, according to their training and experience, and particularly according to their economic condition did extraordinarily well and do not in the slightest degree deserve the contempt and unbridled abuse that has been put upon them. They were not primarily responsible for exceeding waste and corruption in the South any more than the laboring class was to blame for greater waste and dishonesty in the North. They were not proven incapable of self-government. 
On the contrary, they took decisive and encouraging steps toward the widening and strengthening of human democracy. It is only the blind spot in the eyes of America and its historians that can overlook and misread so clear and encouraging a chapter of human struggle and human uplift. And then a poem by A.W. Thomas. Then speed the day and haste the hour. Break down the barriers, gain the power. To use the land and sail the sea, to hold the tools unchecked and free. No tribute pay, but service give. Let each man work that all may live. Banish all bonds and usury. Be free, set free, democracy, democracy. A.W. Thomas. All right! We got through a chapter. We got, we got through, through a, chapter. a chapter. We got through um, a chapter. And this is that part where we do a little debrief on the chapter. You know, a thing that we do. Yeah, um, I think we do sometimes. I think we do sometimes. Um... In this case, I mean, Du Bois, du Bois's last paragraph kind of set it up perfectly there. Um, this was, th- this is the obvious cases of, of states where, where you know, the, the black men were in a, in a distinct minority mm-hmm. compared to everywhere else. Yeah. And so how did that play out? Well, the answer is it played out very similarly to how it played out everywhere fucking else. Um, yeah. I mean, with- we had... We, we've gone through three categories of state, right? We've gone through southern states with black majorities. We've gone through southern states with black minorities. And we've gone through these bordering and western expansion states, right? Um, and, and primarily, you know, you can see the biggest differences come in Missouri and especially Texas. Uh, but even in those states, it looked mostly the same. The biggest difference is those western expansion states mostly had the laws kind of passing half the time a little more smoothly than the other southern and border states but then they weren't really enforced so it didn't matter that they passed um but other than that everything i mean materially was the same right black people fought for their rights public schools for everyone got expanded uh roving gangs of violent white supremacists um got away with god knows what black people struggled to barely get the right to vote through constitutional amendment they regularly could not serve on juries or as witnesses. Uh, they faced black codes. There were small periods where either wad- radical white Republicans or even black representatives held office and they held majorities and Reconstruction was in place. And the state did exceptionally well, except for, of course, the re- corruption of the planters. The planters partnered up with poor whites, including poor whites who were sentimental to the North during the war and got called scalawags for that. Um, and mostly turned on black people during that time. And then after a few years of kind of holding out and trying to improve their conditions, just waves of white supremacy came pouring in. Yep. And that, that kind of seems to be the trend here is that there is, there are those, you know, the roving bands. And we know that this is going to lead to the formation of the, the Ku Klux Klan and all mm-hmm. the things that will come from that. Um, yes. You can see the resistance, and especially, um, I think Tennessee was a great example where they they mentioned the the di- the you know the the battle between the poor whites and and the the freed bl- freedmen were mm-hmm. was more uh, the poor whites were more hostile to the freedmen than the planters were, yeah, um, because they feared they so feared that economic competition. Um, yes, that, that and that's that's where. That's where I really hate the economic anxiety, 
you know, idea, right, name thing that they, they said with Trump with this rising white supremacist, because everybody hears economic anxiety and thinks economic hardship. And so then all of a sudden you think it's these poor people, right, or these people that have understandable economic concerns. And instead, it's fairly well-off, middle-class white people who are very comfortable, who are not experiencing hardship and who have no reason to fear hardship, irrationally fearing hardship and clinging to race and violence. That is exactly what happened after Trump. I think I think if it wasn't misused and, and basically something that people are going to misread no matter how you use it, right? If people actually took it as anxiety and not hardship, they would realize these are very comfortable middle-class rich people that see their economic uh, position threatened for no rational reason and lashed out violently and in a very racist fashion. And you're seeing the same thing from poor whites here. Now, the difference being, I, and, and I'm curious what your thought is here, because the, the way I read the that. The difference being the poor I, whites are actually poor. That, that, that was what I was going to question is because yeah. I, I don't think the economic anxiety people that, you know, the J.D. Vance, the hillbilly elegy bullshit. Uh, yeah. trying to explain the Trump people, I, I think you're dead on there. I think that's 100%. No, that's middle-class white people being just wanting to express racism in its pure and fun forms mm-hmm. that they that they desperately want to cling to because they You think there was something to fear from these white people worrying about. Now, there's a good counter-argument kind of hidden in Tennessee since you did bring it up there. Please. You notice they talked about it was the the black people in the western part of Tennessee where they expanded plantations and were shipping slaves down to the south, things like that, where they had to fight harder. They didn't have to fight as hard for their humanity in eastern Tennessee and Kentucky um, as in other states and regions because the black slaves were rented out for labor, you know, the way you see like prison labor now. And so white people already saw what they were as competition and realized that they're worse being competition as slaves than they are as free people. You know, and is so that, of course, was? I thought it was the exact opposite. Yeah. I thought it, no, East it, it was. I read it as East Tennessee. It was less because they already saw them rented out, and so they were more. They were more akin to abolition, like there was more abolition sentiment in the East than in the West, where they were in plantations, and they were, of course, we got to get into the grotesque idea of, of slaves being bred, but they were being bred to be sent down the Mississippi River and and on and on, right? I'm going. I'm sorry. I'm I, I I'm not I'm not trying to cont- I'm not trying to to, to you get going you, back I, and rereading to be sure. I, I'm just going back. East Tennesseans, yeah. though opposed to slavery and secession, do not like N word, hard N word. Yeah, is, I got that. Day, that was there is that at was this true. day more prejudice against color among the middle and poor classes, the union men of the South who owned few or no slaves, than among the planters who owned them by scores and hundreds. I agree, but go on a little higher when they were talking about plantations and it talked about East Tennesseans not not having any issue with secession, like actually being more or not secession, um, abolition. God, those are totally opposite opposed- things. They were opposed to slavery and they were opposed to secession, mm-hmm. but they hated black people. Yes. And so that's what I'm going to say is is it was a product of they were not threatened when it was freeing the slaves because they lost them as competition for work. They were threatened when it was talking about taking place in government, voting, okay. having nope, any electoral power. Now, all of a sudden, they're threatened by them and they truly hated them. No, that makes that makes perfect sense, and that's yeah. Again, that's that's where the the, the so the so yeah, yeah. So I mean, you have a proof that 
that you know the anxiety of black people are going to take your jobs is a bunch of bullshit. They had a proof of that, and the people that saw that firsthand were for abolition. But all of the white people of the South and anyone who had enjoyed voting rights that didn't include black people and the ability to hold office that didn't include black people and the ability to go to court and not have black witnesses and not have black jurors, uh, they were threatened by that thought and, and it bred hatred. Yep. You know, I mean, again, a hatred is not just this innate feature of people. It is something that is it is something that is bred out of material conditions to large groups and then it is very hard to get rid of. Well, that being said, let's uh, let's give a teaser for what we're coming up with next. Uh, and guys, uh, I, I'm just gonna let you know I hate it. I hate I hate all of it. I hate it. I'm not I'm not happy about this. Uh, chapter fourteen, yeah. counter revolution of property. How after the war, triumphant industry in the North, coupled with privilege and monopoly, led an orgy of theft that engulfed the nation and was the natural child of war. And how revolt against this anarchy became reaction against democracy, North and South, and delivered the land into the hands of an organized monarchy of finance while it overthrew the attempt at a dictatorship of labor in the South. Mm-hmm. Guys, again, I feel like we're talking about into some... I feel like there, there may be some good parallels to uh, imperialism coming up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, lot very of, much. A lot of financial mon- uh, oligarchy coming up here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it all coming down to against the working peoples of the South. And, and this is something we kind of saw coming. You know, we talked about, right, that Reconstruction very much mimicked a dictatorship of the proletariat, and that's what made it good. But it never truly had the power it needed to or the time it needed to and had too many forces working against it because you can't have a dictatorship of the proletariat and a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie at the same time. You have one or the other. And America very much was has always been a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And will continue to be so until such time as we are able to stop it. Mm-hmm. That being said, guys, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. Uh, we read books. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we read one book, and we've only ever read this book, and we'll continue to read it for the rest of linear time, uh, as I have always said. But, but you know, at some point it will end, and then we will read uh, neocolonialism. Uh, just starting to plant that seed early for those of you that want to yes. go out and you know get your neocolonialism book ready because that's that's what we're reading next. There will be no poll, there will be no vote. This is not a democracy. That's right. Our next our next non collaborative book will be neocolonialism. Our next collaboration will be Redskins White Masks. So we will be free of Black Reconstruction one of these days and and moving on to to those two works. I, I there's gonna be a celebration. I'm gonna wear a party hat and bring like poppers. <laughs> The day we're done, the, the day we're setting to finish this book, it will. It, I mean, I'm gonna need like a week to just take a nap after this book. I'm just, it's <laughs> God. There's just be a so first much off here. week everywhere. We earned it. <laughs> National celebration. Mark's Madness Pod has finished Black Reconstruction. Um, and all of you who who wait to binge it can officially start your year long journey into trying to binge right. this nonsense. Um, that being said. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, there are a number of different ways you can do that. Uh, you can reach out to us through email. Our email is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. We're at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. The DMs are open. You can get in there if you need to. Uh, we try and respond as best we can, but we're just two people, and Twitter's a hellscape, so sometimes logging in is a pain. Um, 
that being said, you can also, if you want to reach out to us or just interact with us on a more day-to-day basis, and by us, I do mean Nathan because David is not in there all the time unless I summon him, uh, you can join the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. Uh, our Discord link is in our bio. Uh, it was a Discord that we used to share with Dumb and Awful. Uh, this is my annual plug that Dumb and Awful is coming back. And if you're listening to this episode, they were back as of uh, to yesterday or today. So if you refresh your feed, they're there and they're they're ready ready to rejoin you. They were they're good comrades and they're people that that I have done a lot to help this show. So I appreciate the hell out of them and everything they've ever done for us. Uh, that being said, the link to their to the Discord is in our Twitter bio. And it's just a good community. It's a good community of people. Everyone is there. It's a good place to bounce ideas off. Or if you just want to, you know, have a conversation, Book Club is getting ready to restart. Um, Book Club took a a couple-week hiatus, but they're getting ready to start on the works of Mao. They're going to do a lot of the shorter Mao works uh, that are are really easy to digest. So it's a great time to jump in if you want to jump in and and have a conversation with some comrades around some some works that we are not covering currently. that being said, there is always now always a disclaimer at the end of this episode. And David, take it away with the disclaimer. All right. Um, back in prehistoric times, before there was fire and the invention of the wheel, when we actually read other books. Uh, me and Nathan decided to sit down and read Capital together. And we thought, well, you know, usually you do this kind of reading theory, history, whatever it is, with a group of people. So you can discuss it, tie it back to today's events, fully understand the context, things like that. And we realized our group was a bit small and we had recording equipment. So we recorded and figured, what the hell, maybe we'll grow this group. And we did. And ever since then, our goals of this has been hopefully you're out there in a party organizing, uh, doing the on-the-ground work, the on-the-ground practice. We'll get to that in a second. And, um, you know, along with that, your reading group, political education group in that party is reading these works. And we can be yet another voice in that group. And we can, you know, further enhance, give more context, uh, maybe touch on current events just to, to keep you refreshed. Or if you're binging, remind you what was going on at the time um, and tie this stuff back to today even better. Uh, save for that, save that your reading or political education group is, of course, you know, reading something probably shorter or more related to the organizing that you're doing. Um then, you know, maybe we can be that reading group and we can be that discussion group and we can get you more out of these works if you're reading along with us. And save for that, save this is something either like this book where it's kind of an enhanced ebook. We're reading it word for word and just adding the context and adding the ties back to today. Uh, or if it's kind of an enhanced summary, um, whatever it is, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you and get them out there driving what you do. Because remember that we have to be out there helping each other and serve serving each other and doing mutual aid for each other but whatever mutual aid or help or anything you do uh if it's not driven by this theory it's just charity um or regular community um and then when you add this theory behind it and have that theory guided it turns into praxis which is theory and action and without that praxis there's really no point to this theory they go hand in hand they're tied at the hip that was a good one I feel good about that one. That was a good disclaimer, David. David good. does these off the dome ad lib every week, and, it, and, and sometimes they're great. And that was a great one. So good, good work on you, David. Good on implication you. being sometimes they're not, but we won't talk about that this week. I don't know what you're talking about. That's not the implication at all. Uh, that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.